Hey, I am Mustafa Sharif, and thank you for listening to Urbanistica podcast. My guest from New York City, she's working in Project for Public Spaces, Nidhi Gulati. Welcome, Nidhi. Hi, Mustafa. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for your time, and I'm looking forward to this episode. Me too. I have a lot of questions to you, but I would love to start with you. You are the storyteller. Well, tell me about you, tell me about your passion, and tell me about your journey in Project for Public Space organization. Yes. Um, so my name is Nithi Gulati, as you said. Uh, I'm a senior director at Project for Public Spaces. I consider myself a social impact professional, um, and built environment is my area of expertise. I'm a born and bred Indian. I live um, in New York City, and I work worldwide. What, my, what drives me to do the work that I do is that I really, really like cities, um, but cities where I can actually get around and get around autonomously because I'm a non-driver. I've never learned how to, how to drive a car and my access to cities and my freedom tends to be very affected by that fact, um, especially American cities and you know other countries with sprawling auto-centric development. So my ability to explore cities has a really deep impact on the work that I do. And I really, really like exploring them, as I said. Um, I'm also really passionate about the topic of child-friendly development um, and development that prioritizes growth of young children into independent living beings in our built environment, development that supports their social, physical, and psychological well-being, and especially children who live in traditionally marginalized and lower-income communities with fewer means um, to work with. What brought me to this work to New York um, is, as I said, I'm a born and raised Indian. I studied architecture, and one primary reason I studied architecture was because I didn't want to study engineering. I didn't know a lot about architecture. I just knew that it was a creative field and it was not engineering. Um, and I, I went and got a five-year Bachelor of Architecture degree. I was working in New Delhi in, in a really great architecture firm. But I realized that I was less interested in independent buildings, and I was more interested in the space outside of buildings. Um, gardens, parks, streets, the, the in-between spaces were what always interested me a lot more um, than independent buildings. So I decided to go back to graduate school to study the in-between spaces and I uh, went to graduate school in Texas so you can imagine my my non-driver self moving yes. from you know New Delhi India or <laughs> you know really a small town of 28 million people um, to a sprawling um, college town in in Texas College Station and I remember that feeling of first time coming out of the airport in Houston and seeing all the freeways and nobody was walking. And I thought to myself, where is everyone? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I took I took a shuttle from Houston Airport to College Station to go to my apartment. And I asked my roommate, how do I get back to Houston? And she told me, you take the shuttle again. Well, oh. the shuttle was really expensive for a graduate student to take all the time. And so the backup option was that you you ask someone for a ride in their car or you drive. And I remember asking her, the name of the town is College Station. Where is the station? And I was told that the, the, tra the station shut down to passenger um, trains many decades ago, that it was just a name. 
and it was just oh, that's that's a really sad story. <laughs> and I I remember the, my first night in America, really thinking, did I make a mistake? Did I just get trapped? Um, because I I don't drive. So you know, seven, you know, ten years uh, into the future, here I am, um, and I think a lot about cities. I think a lot about transportation. I think a lot about how we design our cities and the impact that has on people's sense of autonomy and sense of self, because I've personally been in a place where my sense of autonomy and independence was extremely challenged because I chose not to drive. Um, so that's what brought me to this work. I know it, it sounds sad, but I, I say this story I, again and again, because it drives me. <laughs> Yeah, I, no, I think I think the story is very good and it's very inspirational. That you're you're like the the real user of what we're planning for. Exactly. Yeah. And what's 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 still really important to to know is that even though my lifestyle didn't change tremendously between um, you know Delhi and and College Station, Texas, I did quadruple or or more my carbon footprint because I was living in a place where. Even if I didn't drive, there was all the freeway infrastructure to support, you know, me driving. And there was multiple parking lots outside grocery stores and a hospital and everywhere reserved for me because I now was part of the census. I was part of the population even when I wasn't driving. So I still tremendously increased my carbon footprint by changing that zip code. And I think that's really, really important to remember. Yeah, yeah. You, you became part of the system. I became part of the system, exactly. Now you're working for a project for public space. Mm -hmm. And how long have you been working in this organization? And if you'd like to tell us more about it. Sure. Um, I started at Project for Public Spaces in early 2013 as a transportation advocate, because, of course, my qualification was that I was a non-driver. So I was inherently motivated <laughs> to change transportation. Um, and that's that's where the journey started. I've held several positions at the organization. I've, I've been a project manager. I've been a program manager for the transportation program to now um, being the senior director for programs and projects. Um, Project for Public Spaces is a nonprofit, non-government planning and design organization based in New York City. We were founded in 1975 by Fred Kent, Kathy Madden, and Steve Davies to start to change the way people designed um, public spaces and cities. Our organization has a vision um, of a world where members of the community get to envision what their public spaces look like, how they're designed, how they're programmed, and how they're managed, irrespective of their social, economic, cultural, and racial status. So we strongly believe that great public spaces lead to great communities, and we're driven to create these communities. And it's really that mission that has allowed us to be here after 45 years. It has allowed us to work in more than 3,000 communities in 52 countries, I believe. Um, and what we've been practicing in, in all these countries and finessing for the past 45 years is um, the placemaking process. That's really what we what we championed, um, and it's our approach to a human-centered planning and design, yeah. because placemaking really honors the needs, desires, and preferences of, of the people that use them in every aspect of, of design of their public realm. You know, placemaking and public space making, many people think that this is, it's trendy now, but what I know mm -hmm. is it's not actually something new for us in, mm -hmm. in city planning. 
Like, right. for, for example, for you, you have been working in this field for more than 40 years. So it's not, not a really new topic for our right. cities. It is not. It is not. At the, at the heart of, of the term placemaking is the word place. And what that means is there's a lot of theory kind of defining what place means. In simplest terms, what place means is that there's a space, a geographic architectural entity that has some meaning attached to it. Like it has, it has a story, it has a meaning attached to it um, that really makes it more than that geographic architecture entity. So think about how do we use the word place? We say, this is a good place, this is an exciting place, this is a bad place. It always has a quality and a description. So yeah. place is something that lives in people's minds it lives in people's stories and it lives in people's memories. So it's really a very simple con concept that it is a thing, a space, geographic thing with a meaning attached to it. And it doesn't even have to always be a positive meaning. Sometimes the meaning is really negative. As I said, sometimes people say this is a bad place or this is a, this is a terrifying place or this is an unsafe place. Sometimes that meaning is negative, but our job as placemakers is to allow for as much positive meaning to happen, um, which is why it's so important for us to be talking to people because the people who use these spaces are the people who attach that meaning, who tell those stories, who make those stories, who make those memories. So important for us to really talk to the people how they would like to attach meaning, how they would like to tell stories, and what stories would they like to tell. Exactly. Um, right. So it's a really simple process, the way we've um, always practiced it. But now, you know, social media is a big thing. Big media is a thing. And yeah. people have heard about it. People have seen the impacts of good placemaking projects. And it's become very trendy. But the, the, the underlying process, as you said, doesn't change it's relevant now and it will continue to be relevant in the future yeah do you, do you think uh, involving people or involving community mm -hmm. in creating uh, public spaces is it worth because many of the clients tell them okay it's going to cost a lot of money mm -hmm. and what i'm going to gain with this so it's a kind of waste of money and time and energy Right. Um, well, it, it helps in many ways, I think. First of all, I said placemaking won't occur without individual independent stories that people have uh, in public space. Um, and without that, it won't be a place. It'll just be it'll just be an architectural entity. So I think just from a process perspective, it's very important to be talking to the user to really understand how they want to use it. The other thing is, you know, we're, we're in a world where a lot of places are starting to look alike. They're going, they're starting to look like each other. Yes. Um, and if we have to create unique experiences and unique places, we have to really understand what is unique about that space to begin with. And who can better tell you what's unique about a place than the people who live there and the people who experience it on a daily basis. So it allows really to build that uniqueness in a space. Another thing it really helps with is that when you make people feel like they belong, give them a sense of agency, give people a voice, they feel more attached to the outcome. They feel more attached to the public space that's created in the end, which means they care about it more. They would want to invest in it. They would want to spend time there and they would want to help take care of that space. So it allows us to really build this, you know, wealth of stewards and, you know, ownership among people who really want to use it. Um, and then it allows people to really 
exercise their rights as citizens of a country and citizens of a world. You know, this is where you come together outside of your homes, and this is what allows communities to thrive. So if you expect people to thrive and communities to thrive, it's important to understand from them, um, you know, what kind of places they want to see. And if we don't engage the community, the risk is that we can, it can lead to disinvestment, it can lead to disrepair, it can lead to no use of the public space, and it can also lead to kind of lack of trust in public processes. It can also lead to lack of attachment to one's neighborhood and all these things, because then it feels like your public space is something given to you and not for you and not created with you. So in order to kind of keep away from these risks of the community getting disengaged, it's important to engage them from the very beginning. Yeah, so it's a kind of long-term investment. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Um, in another in other way that can be very helpful, I know that economic development and small business incubation is really top of mind. Those things add a tremendous value to the uniqueness of a place too, you know, the local economy. And if we start to engage community from the beginning, we can start to understand what are some of those inherent talents in a community, those entrepreneurial ideas um, that can be brought to the forefront through great public spaces, opportunities that can be created through the public spaces for entrepreneurship and a thriving local economy to exist. Yeah, and it, this is going beyond the traditional urban design, right? Mm -hmm. More understanding the, the surrounding, the actors, the people. Right. And creating the public Right. Space. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Nidhi, what makes a successful place? You and Project for Public Spaces mm -hmm. have, have analyzed many of public spaces, mm -hmm. and then you made a, a method or a, a diagram that shows the quality in a successful public space. Um, so, the first and foremost, I would like to say a great public space is the one that responds to the needs of the community where it is. So it's very important for us to first ask, who is this public space for? And if it is to become a great public space, it has to really respond to the needs of the community that we expect to be using that public space. So that's that's the first criteria. Then I would add that after synthesizing and looking at places around the world for the past 45 years, we've come up with this diagram that you can find on our website, you know, of what makes a great place. Yes, and it's it has a beautiful circular Yes. Colorful yep. I love With it. Four, four quadrants. Um, and it really boils down the, the ingredients for um, a great public space into four big categories. The first is uses and activities. So again, once we figure out who the public space is for, it's important to think about what would they want to do in a public space? What kinds of uses and things and activities and experiences would really attract those people and allow them to create create, you know, again, I'll keep going back to create those memories that people very want good, to create. Very good, very good, because um, this is the core. It, that's the core of it, exactly. That, that, you know, the stories that people want to be able to tell. So what are the uses and activities that would really attract the, the community to come to the public space and use it? The second one I would want to say is access and linkage, you know, all in all the ways that we access a public space, physically, on foot, by cycles, by public transit, however, also, how we visually and through sounds and through other tactile measures, how do we access a public space? Because if we can't get to it, then what good is the space? It's important for people to safely and conveniently be able to get to a place. Once we get the people there, then the third uh, ingredient comes in of comfort and image. 
human beings, you know, human species are very, very sensitive to this idea of comfort. The moment we feel uncomfortable in a space, in a conversation, in a relationship, we tend to try and want to leave. We tend to try and leave as soon as possible. So for a public space to be a great public space, it has to be comfortable for people so that they would want to stay and not leave. And this idea of comfort is also very community specific because every individual defines and feels comfortable in a different way. It's not one universal definition. It varies significantly based on your, your gender, your gender identity, your culture, your race, and all the things that make us who we are. The idea of comfort changes pretty significantly. And once people feel comfortable, it's really important to think about sociability. Will people be able to build a social capital by visiting this public space? Will be able to will they be able to have tiny social encounters like you know exchanging eye glances or a smile, maybe somebody saying good morning, or maybe two people sitting together and having a conversation for hours? Like that idea of sociability can vary pretty significantly from being in the same space with other people all the way to like hanging out with your friends for multiple hours. So those four ingredients combined is what um, makes really great public space. But as I said, it's really important to think about how those four apply to particular populations because they are not. it's not the same. No two communities are the same. No two people are the same. So it's really important to make it about the people and the community so you can get to that right recipe from these ingredients. Yeah, exactly. And under these four categories, there are mm-hmm. many subcategories that help to understand or to analyze mm-hmm. space. I and personally, uh, as I said, uh, Masaf, I like to not think about those outer two categories as much because I feel that they're too prescriptive. Like those should be created upon understanding the community further okay. and better so that we're not generalizing that five aspects of access and linkage make it attractive for everyone because that is just not the reality of yes, the way our yes. world is. So you, your suggestion is that we keep to the four categories yes. and understand more out from these point of mm-hmm. views, the space exactly. and the people. Exactly. I would even say that we work with the community to understand what are some of the characteristics under the four categories and what are some of the performance indicators or measurables or impact categories. That's the the outermost wheel. That should absolutely be created with the community so that we're not saying that rising property values is always a good thing because we know that it's not always a good thing. So those those measurables and those impact statements should really also be created with the community. So the inner four, yeah, the core four is what I'll I'll stick with. Yeah. But I see that your the diagram is a, having a circular form, which means they are equal. But can we prioritize two of them or three of them? What do you think? Possibly, depending on what aspect of the current situation is lacking the most. Does that make Does that make sense? Um, so, for example, a, a particular yeah. public space, it may already have great access. Like it may already have. From my personal experience, like I may be able to walk there very conveniently. I may be able to take a cycle or take the bus there very conveniently. I may be able to see it from a distance and cross the street safely and get there very easily. And I may even live two minutes away from it. So the Uh access might be working perfectly. But if the other three elements are lacking, then we should absolutely be focusing on those more. So it's, it's, I would say it varies quite a lot. 
But in the end, we would want to get to some sort of a balance between the four, like the end product, if there is such a thing, because, you know, we're never done. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but this the is what makes, uh, this what makes uh, urban planning and creating public spaces interesting, because it's, uh, it's a <laughs> forever project, you know? Absolutely. And that's why we love cities, right? I mean, they, they yeah, keep yeah, changing. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not the same. They're never the same. And that's just the beauty of the built environment. Exactly. Which groups should we consider when we're thinking to create a public space? Mm -hmm. Because we have so many different groups with different socioeconomic levels mm -hmm. and interest. And yes, so what to focus on? I would say that if we have to focus and prioritize, we should always prioritize the people that don't have the same means as as others you know we should always be thinking about the populations that are more vulnerable and the populations that are lower incomes and and marginalized for for decades if not centuries centuries if we have to become somebody's voice and if we have to make sure somebody's voice is heard it should always be the people whose voice doesn't always get heard so i'll i'll, I'll give you a few examples yes yes um, if we, for example, if we had to prioritize in terms of age ranges, you know, who, whose needs should we cater to? As I said previously, my recommendation would always be, let's think about the really young kids who never get represented in um, the public processes, but probably have the most to gain or lose just by the sheer number of years that they have ahead of them um, from an investment in the public realm. So let's really think about the, the youngest of ages. And then let's think about our, our aging populations who, again, through the place where they are in their life and their reducing autonomy and reducing sense of independence, how do we mo make sure that their voices are heard? So in terms of ages, I would always say, let's go to you know, the eight and 80 concept. I would also say eight months to 80 years kind of concept um, okay. would be what I would say. If we were thinking about in terms of abilities, should we be focusing on the, the fully functional, able-bodied adult? Probably not, because they know how, how to get their needs met. They, they have a pretty significant voice, and a place that works for the less abled person would work just fine for a fully abled person. So we should always be thinking about somebody who's differently abled, less abled through, through some circumstance, and how their needs get met. Um, and in terms of you know, the racial and cultural balances, you can say in the in the United States at least that there are there are groups that have been significantly marginalized over centuries, and do not have a voice in the public process, do not always get a voice in the political process and the decision making process. So how do we really ensure that the people who haven't had a voice really get a voice, and they should be our priority one, level one kind of audience for the community engagement process? Yes. You might know that we here in Sweden now we have a, from the Swedish mm -hmm. government that called the right for the children. Mm -hmm. And when we plan new development, urban development, we have to talk to the kids. Absolutely. And ask what they need, what they imagine. So now it's from the 1st of January 2020. It's actually mm -hmm. a must to do on the list, That's which is fantastic. really great. Yeah. That's really fantastic because... The number of kids in our cities is increasing significantly, and um, was recently made aware of a statistic that by 2050, half of our city's population would be children under the age of 13, I believe. Don't, don't quote me. I may be wrong on the exact yeah. number. But even if it was slightly different, imagine the percentage of a city's population that is made up of kids 
and their caregivers. So that is the most dominant population. How can we ever design a city without talking to the most dominant population yes. group? Yes, exactly. What, which, which kind of city are we planning if we're not exactly. talking to the users? Exactly. Absolutely. And as I said, they have the most to gain or lose from their cities. The way their brains are being developed, their social skill, their psychological skills, their sense of tolerance, their sense of, you know, understanding different cultures, races, languages, all that is developing at a much faster rate. So public spaces can be so much more um, impactful on the lives of these developing brains. And if we don't think about them, then we won't think about their development in those regards. Kids really smart because when we're talking about, uh, we call it the dialogue for the plan, for mm -hmm. urban planning. Mm -hmm. So we ask them for a suggestion that they, how they want to develop the area. Mm -hmm. And they just come with a fantastic idea. So it's, it's super useful to talk with them, to get inspiration from them. Right. And they have their, I mean, they're, they're the, at their most creative age. They aren't bogged down by policies and systems and rules and codes yeah, yeah. and zoning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the boring part of the story. Exactly. They're so much more creative. Um, yeah. And we should, we should really find as many ways as possible to leverage that creativity. Yeah, that's fantastic. We are talking about Sweden now. Here in Sweden or in Scandinavia, if I just mm -hmm. have to say marginalize that, we have six months of beautiful weather and mm -hmm. we have six months of winter and snow right. weather. Right. So in many times of the year, our public spaces are not functional mm. and it turned to be like really off from the city. So do right. you have any suggestion in your mind because you're not really here? So you, you might have something to inspire <laughs> us. How do we deal right. with it? Right. Um, I think with with winter weather, we, we do get some of that in New York. <laughs> get some winter, uh, although today it's looking like a beautiful spring day. Um, for win winter weather, weather, it's really important to think about the things that people already do in winter weather. It's like, what are the types of things that people um, like to do in their spare time? And how can we bring some of that activity to the public space? You know, how can some of those activities be brought out? Because... The fact doesn't change that people like to be social, people like to be with other people, and they want a reason to come together. And hosting in somebody's home, is that's a huge pressure. So public space, again, is that neutral ground, um, technically all free, funded by our public resources. So it's not one person's responsibility, everybody's responsibility. So thinking about the uses that people already kind of like to do in the winter and bringing them out into public space, you know, for a community or members of the community who like to ice skate, can we build an ice skating rink in the public space? For people who like to come out, sit next to a fire pit and roast marshmallows, I don't know, like can we, <laughs> in a contained environment, create that? And then festivals that people already like to celebrate, you know, Diwali is, is our biggest festival in, in India. Um, so can we have like markets outside in the public realm with the festivities? So actually give people a reason to celebrate outside in the public realm. In in New York, we have um, some pretty phenomenal winter markets and Christmas markets, which I know is not just a New York thing. I've heard that yes, lots yes. of different countries have them. Um, so the things that people already like to do, the things that people already celebrate, how can we celebrate them in the public realm and use that as kind of, you know, the, the 
the playground, for the lack of a better word, for these celebrations to occur in small and subtle ways. Because if we give people a reason to be out there in the public realm and account for their comfort and account for their access and the social value they're seeking, people would come out, maybe not in the same numbers as a good summer day, maybe not stay as long as a good summer day, but people do come out. But we have to very deliberately create those reasons for people to come out and allow for those uses and celebrations to occur in the public space. Yeah, so if I understand you correctly, it's back again that we should encourage people and engage them in creating the winter public space. Absolutely, absolutely. And we should really have the you know the the great place wheel that we were talking about the four ingredients we should have seasonal versions of it so we can think about what are the types of uses that would work in the not the best weather and what are the uses that would work in the greatest weather so if we can have versions of that wheel we can really get started uh, on a strategy to make sure that people would come out yeah so but you believe that a public space is a livable space not only a couple of benches and fontaine it's changed during the year as how the season. Yes, uh huh. It should um, public, and there's no there's no doubt that we need fix things in public spaces. We sometimes, you know, we need we need signage, we need water fountains, we do need benches. Although benches benches don't always even need to be fixed, and we yeah. need their grass or flooring, and so the the physical um, elements are necessary. But the layer of temporary things that come and go that change over the course of the year is also very important because if the weather is not the same over the course of the year, if people's needs are not the same over the course of the year, then how would a public space that is static work over the course of the year? It, it cannot be static. It has to have um, things that change over um, the course of the year, and they don't always have to be planned markets and festivities, they can also be the ways in which people like to come out and use their own public space. Like, can people come out and use it in, in a really warm summer day? Is there shade and shelter where they can get some shelter from the sun? And also when it's raining and it starts to snow, is there places for shelter? So can people really use it in their own ways over the course of a year as well? So it's important to think about seasonality because that's just the reality that we live with. Yeah, if we don't yeah. wear the same clothes over the course <laughs> of the year. Um, that's that's a really good example. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we just like everything changes over the course of the year. We eat different foods, we wear different clothes, and how can we expect our, our exactly. um, public spaces our space to, be to be the same? same. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Now public spaces are kind of trying to be a copy of other successful public spaces mm -hmm. and not really having their own identity and character. What do you think about that? I think it's, it's okay to be inspired, but it's not okay to copy. Because when we copy, we're ignoring the ways in which people are different and their preferences are different and their habits are different and their culture is different. And, you know, all of the things that we talk about are socioeconomic, cultural, ra racial um, aspects have a lot to do with how we like to spend time in our public spaces. And if we've copied, then we are assuming that something that works in New York City, New York, can also work in New Delhi, India. That is just simply not the truth. Yeah. So I think it's it's okay to be to draw inspiration, but it it's not okay to copy because that just means that we haven't considered. Um, all the nuances, the subtle nuances and ways in which that community is different. And that just means we haven't 
you know, consulted with the community. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. anti-placemaking, and I can't say that that's okay. <laughs> exactly. And what what is your favorite public space that you you would love to be there every day? Like when you wake up, you say, "Okay, I want to be there." I do you have a do you have a favorite public space? I have I have two. I had a very tricky relationship with public spaces growing up in India because. I grew up in North India, and um, as a as a child of a, a middle income family um, and a woman, it wasn't always safe for me to be in the public space. And they they tend to be dominantly occupied by by men, um, yes. and not always in the right ways. I would say that they are often occupied by men because they're designed by men. The needs of women haven't been considered, which is why that that occurs. Um, but we can have a totally different podcast about, you know, the gender yes, in public. I, I, I would love to talk. I would love to talk about this and just inspire all the urban planners, the communities, because it's so important. Absolutely. So, so I had a tricky relationship growing up. Um, but there was this place when I was working as an architect in Delhi. There was this really simple shopping complex um, in the neighborhood where my architecture office was, where uh, there was a central courtyard with a fountain that never worked. Um, that we used to always, like me and my friends would always just go there, sit around and talk for hours. You could always see other people. You could sit on, you know, the non-functioning fountain. Um, and Indians do a really good job at the informal economy around food. So there was always, you know, some street vendors that we could buy food from, get a few cups of coffee in not spending a lot of money. We always spent hours there. It was one of my favorite things to do. Um, and it was amazing because many years later, I read the book, um, The Great Good Place by um, the author Ray Oldenburg, and he talks about the idea of third places. And it made me realize that that simple fountain um, and that experience I was having was really our third place. We used to just leave work and automatically gravitate there so that we could spend some more time with my friends. And that was that was amazing. Um, in New York, I have a favorite place too. Um, Washington Square Park is very close to where our office is. It's kind of the informal quad of NYU, New York University. And um, it's this it's this amazing space that's always different. Like even the if the sun is out, people are out. It doesn't matter if it's a winter day or the summer day. There's so many different places to sit. There's so many different kinds of people that walk through there. And there's so many different types of people who activate the park in their own way. Like you can always see somebody playing the violin or somebody playing the piano, somebody yeah. trying to sell something, you know, mm. political activism pins and things like that. And on summer days, you can see people doing chalk art and this person who brings out like big balloons, like wow. the the bubbles, like the big yeah, bubbles, yeah, yeah, the kids yeah. playing in the bubbles. And it's just always different. And it does also have a pretty iconic um, arch on the northern end that, you know, people have seen in, in movies and TV shows about <laughs> New York. Um, so it does have that iconic image to it, too. But it's just it's always so different. And we're just so fortunate that um, our offices are not that far from there. So I get to go there quite often. So those those two would probably fall at the top of, um, and for, and they're totally completely different from each other, but they were, you know, I had some pretty amazing experiences in both those places. Yeah. That's really beautiful. I think you're lucky to having a 
great public space close to your working place. Yes, it is. We are very fortunate. Yeah, that makes you more creative. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, every time we need to take a breath, leave, you know, leave work for a few minutes, or just in between phone calls and meetings, it's it's right there. So it just allows you to like de-stress and see other people and observe some really fun activity that allows you to feel more human and part of a city and part of a community. Yeah. Uh, last week I had um, an episode with uh, an urban planner, a Swedish urban planner. His name mm-hmm. is Alexander Stoll. Mm-hmm. And he made a research about the different management of a public space. Right. And he compared Japan to New York and mm-hmm. to London and Paris. And he found out that in New York you have a, a private managed public space yes what do you think the consequences of public space finance are managed by private actors um i think it can go either really really right or really really wrong (laughs) quickly um we you know we are seeing a tremendous decrease in funding to support great public spaces their building of great public spaces and their management um, and when resources are thinning out, it's it's important to get creative and it's important to think about other ways in which that funding gap can be filled because people um, need good public spaces and that need has to be fulfilled. So private entities and private um, enterprises and private monies can really help fill a gap where there is a gap. But when there aren't mechanisms to make sure that the community that lives around the public space will be prioritized and their needs will be prioritized. If there isn't a mechanism to ensure that, it can go very, very wrong very quickly because it can feel like it's privatized. It can feel like it's for someone else, maintained by someone else and run by someone else. Um, So that's really, really important to think about. How will we make sure that the human-centered, people-centered aspect of that public space will remain um, even when private um, investment is being brought into a a space. Um, Some places have done an all right job. Other places have not done a good job, and I think everybody (laughs) knows those examples. Um, And another thing to think about is when private entities want to support a public space, we have to think about where would they want to go the chances of them wanting to invest in a really low-income, marginalized community are not that high. And if they want to invest in a community that has lower means, what is the catch? Why are they in, interested? Are they doing it for their own marketing, their own um, image? Like All of these things are really important to consider. The, the perfect case scenario, I would say, is, um, you know, I, I also study social impact a lot, a lot yes, social yes. enterprises. And one of the things about social enterprise and social innovation that's very um, easy to kind of understand is that social innovation occurs at the intersection of the public sector, the private sector, and the business, um, business and, sorry, the public sector, the private and business sector, and the impact sector. The impact sector is where you know, nonprofits, philanthropies, grassroots activists, and everybody fits in the impact sector, making sure everybody else is, you know, doing what's right for the greater yes, community. Yes. Um, the public sector is where our government sits. But then the private and the business sector is also very important, especially in a capitalist country like the United States. It is also a very critical part of how the world functions and how cities get designed and function. So if we can layer in all three of those 
is when I think you'll get the best model, not the dominance of any one of the three, but kind of a combination and layering of all three, I think, is where we want to get to in the future. Yeah. Do you think the, the municipality is responsible for all these three to interact with each other? They can be, um, but if they're if they're not taking that charge, then the impact sector, I think nonprofits and advocates and non-government agencies are really good at making sure there's accountability, making sure that there is a collaboration and an overlap. So I think public entities and the nonprofit sector can both play a tremendous role in making sure that overlap occurs. Yeah, it's it's a really big challenge to to create a great public space. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. What That's do you why think? I have a job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're doing really good. Thank you. What are the other challenges that uh, public space facing? Right. Um, I think the ongoing issue of um, public spaces and the future of public spaces is who has access to public spaces. Because traditionally, wealthier communities have always had better access. And when that happens, not everyone gets to reap the many benefits of um, great public spaces that we now know about, all the benefits that good parks and plazas and good streets have for communities. So if everybody doesn't have equal access, then everybody doesn't draw equal benefits from the public spaces. And it's really, really important for the people who don't have access to big backyards or private clubs or, you know, front yards and gardens and lawns of their own. So, you know, I'm a renter in New York City. I don't have a backyard. I don't have a front yard. I really rely and count on my public spaces to get a lot of my general social capital and feeling like I belong in New York City. So I need those. So it's important to think about who has access. And if we don't have access, we also will not have that common ground in our cities that we need so much to just be engaged people and engaged citizens of the world. So the that access issue has existed in the past. It will continue to be a challenge that we face in the future. Yeah. Um, the second one I said was, um, I, we already briefly talked about it, the funding challenge. You know, funding to build and maintain good public spaces is decreasing. At least that's what we see here um, in the U.S. So which you make almost makes us have to rely on private sources for that purpose. Um, and when there aren't enough mechanisms to ensure that there will be an overlap of the three sectors, and it's really can be really dangerous, especially when investment in public space is kind of used as a proxy for bad development or for gentrification. You know, what are, what are what are some of the private forces trying to hide by investment in public spaces should also always be questioned. Um, for me personally and my own experience, I would say cars are a challenge, a huge challenge, automobiles, yeah. especially in you know, emerging economies and emerging cities, like my cities in my own country, um, you know, we're given over our precious public space to accommodate these private gadgets that literally increase the, the footprint of a human by more than 10 times wow. and increase the carbon footprint. Like, think about the amount of space one human needs and a car needs. So we're trying to accommodate in a very tight um, kind of geographic area we're trying to accommodate these private gadgets that just take so much more space and basically killing our planet. So cars will continue to be um, a huge challenge. Um, and then climate change, you know, the pressures on our public yes. spaces are tremendous. Um, they are a crucial part of our physical and social infrastructure, which makes them a crucial part of our physical and social resilience infrastructure. So in a time where funding is vanishing, 
public spaces are expected to do so much more than provide just gathering spaces. And that will continue to be the balance that we will have to strike in the future of how our public spaces become ultra smart, become part of our social and physical resilience infrastructure, and continue to be provide that common ground in our communities that we need so badly. Yeah, so so many and so big challenges that need a lot of co-creation, co-working, co-thinking to to right. pass these challenges. Absolutely, we'll yeah, all need to work together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because as you mentioned, municipality cannot only solve all mm -hmm. the problems, mm -hmm. and private sectors as well. So it's it, it's about it's about co-collaborations. Right, and municipalities can regulate things. Municipalities can try to control. Um, what some of the you know private entities are, are doing, but unless the private entities become part of the social impact sector and the, having the impact on their own right, we will not be equally uh, successful. So we, we all have to work together because our environment is tied, our planet is tied, we're, we're all at the end of the day living in the same country and you know the, our planet is that one country, we're all connected yeah. and we'll just we have to work together. It, it shouldn't be allowed for one group of people um, or one country to either destroy it or have to redeem it and fix it. We'll, we'll all have to work on it together. Yeah. If, if you take us to the future, what is a smart city for you? I think a smart city, in my opinion, is one that I will keep going back to the same thing. The yes. one that really respects the needs of people that will live in those cities, because our habits, our patterns, our desires are, are pretty standard from the time that we people started observing human behavior. So how do we use um, the smart city technology to understand human behavior and kind of you know cater to that better? And how do we actually use technology for community good instead of individual good? We, we need to stop thinking about um, you know one individual person and one individual person's um, well-being and future outcomes, we have to think about our society, our community, our, our neighborhood. How do we leverage technology for communal good? I, in all the conversation that we've been having around autonomous vehicles and autonomous cars, yeah, I want to talk about autonomous buses. I want to talk <laughs> about autonomous trains. Like That's how do true. We get, yeah. How do we get more people to where they want to go together so they don't have to sacrifice their social life they don't have to sacrifice feeling like a part of the community and get to use technology for the benefits so the smart city of the future is one that respects the needs of human beings that we already know prioritizes well-being for people who have traditionally been left on the sidelines of decision making and are traditionally marginalized how do we really cater to those using technology and how do we cater to community good instead of the ind individual good using technology. Those yeah. things is, is what will make a smart city really smart. Yeah, exactly. So for you, technology is a tool to make a smart city more social. Exactly. And, and accessible for all different groups in the exactly. society. Exactly. And I have the same approach towards cars and as I do to technology. Like they should be serving the things that us as communities need instead of us serving them and creating space for them. It yeah, should be totally yeah. the other way around. Yeah. And what other things you do in Project for Public Spaces apart of designing or creating a, mm -hmm. a public space? So we um, we also have, we are a mission-driven nonprofit, as I said. So we also have our own nonprofit programs internally that um, 
target um, thought leadership, constantly exchange of knowledge from around the world of what's working, what's not working. And we also are constantly creating new tools that we apply in our projects and that we also make available to communities around the world um, to use to benefit their uh, public spaces and to analyze their public spaces and come up with recommendations for their own public spaces. So we, we create this database of case studies and wealth of knowledge from around the world and distill tools out of it. And that is part of our kind of our programmatic portfolio. In addition to that, uh, you might know, Musaf, we also do a lot of um, conferences and in-house trainings. Yeah, the in-house trainings are more about um, kind of sharing of the tools and sharing of the knowledge that we have and then learning from our participants to continue to refine our practice. So that allows for that two-way education to occur um, in-house. And we also do out-of-house trainings where we would travel to a particular community um, and conduct trainings to exchange um, our tools and then gain tools from them. And we also do conferences. So we do placemaking week conferences. Last year, that was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The next location is yet to be disclosed. Um, but we also have our Walk by Places conference coming up in Indianapolis in August this year, which is a conference focused more on mobility, transportation, and our street infrastructure. And that one is going to occur this year and happens every two years as well. So it's kind of a trifecta of thought leadership and changing the conversation around public spaces on the ground projects, and then constantly bringing people together for exchange of knowledge and ideas. Yeah. That's really fantastic because I'm following the organization on the homepage, LinkedIn, mm-hmm. Instagram. It's so much inspiration. Of course, I'll I'll make sh- I'll let our team know uh, and I'll make sure that they know that the voices yeah. are being heard and inspiration yeah. is happening. A big greetings from the heart of Scandinavia to all of you. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, there are other ways for us, you know, to follow the work that I'm doing. You know, obviously. Hashtag placemaking anywhere is an important way to figure out. I'm also um, building on my interest of child-friendly cities um, with hashtag cities for kids. So it's that's a great way to interact with what I'm doing and um, share with me what somebody else might be, might be doing. So tag all the ways in which um, your city does or doesn't cater to the needs of the, the youngest um, people. And um, that'll be really great too. Of course, of course. And tell me more about the team and the organization. We are slowly developing uh, sub-teams within the organization, but we work across teams a lot here. We are we're a fairly small organization. We are um, around 25 people in the office. Everybody is based in New York City, and we, we travel the world as we do the work. So we rely on each other pretty heavily um, for expertise, and we all come from very different backgrounds. You know, Some of us are architects, including me, some of us are urban planners. Uh, we have environmental scientists. We have anthropologists in the past and um, people from just like very different um, educational backgrounds. So we have to rely on each other pretty significantly to continue to provide a more comprehensive set of services. But we're slowly developing our teams internally um, around particular program areas. It's not fully come to fruition yet, but hopefully we'll be able to um, get to that in the relatively near future. But I don't think that working across the organization and working with people from other teams will ever change. That's just, that's just makes us um, a more kind of comprehensive skill set and a strong organization. Yeah. What a great mix within the team. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're fortunate. We, we like um, the diversity of backgrounds and knowledge that we bring to the table. That's really fantastic. Nidhi, what is the next step for you? 
continuing to do more of what I already do um, and really, really getting to focus on kids, larger social problems, tackling climate change more head on and really thinking about ways in which we can mitigate the impacts of climate change by actually focusing more on the social infrastructure. We feel like social infrastructure and social resilience often gets ignored. But at the end of the day, it's important how many people you know and who's going to come to your aid if you're ever in a state of distress. So really, really getting to focus on social resilience, cities for kids, and more placemaking for cities all around the world. That's, yeah. that's what's next. I'm looking forward to follow you and doing the different project because this is inspiring us so much here in Good. Europe. Me, me too. Um, I look forward to staying in touch with all the great things that you talk about and all the other people you bring to the podcast. This is, this is really course. great. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. Well, you shared with us a lot of great things. I'm very thankful for this. If you summarize everything in three takeaway messages, the most important things. Mm -hmm. Never lose sight of who's not at the table and who's not getting served in your communities, by your communities, by the government and by the processes. I think it's extremely important for us to think equitably, for us to really think about all people in our cities. And we shouldn't lose sight of somebody who looks different from us, sounds different from us, eats different foods from us. Never forget that our, our city is that much stronger um, and our diversity really makes us who we are. So never lose sight of who you don't see in your daily lives and their needs. That's really, really important. Um, I also want people to really get excited but also a little bit scared about what climate change is doing to our cities um, and the kind of planet that we're leaving behind for the future generations. Let's think about what is it that we're doing today that we could be doing differently so that we leave a better planet. And a lot of that comes down to making sure that um, the city policies, the state level policies and the country level policies are working to ensure that the tomorrow will be sustainable in some way, and we're not leaving a worse planet for the future generations. And then never forget the power of the city, our most complex system that we know, the power of the city in combating all these challenges. Cities are phenomenal engines of change. This is, they're the testing grounds of any and all ideas. And let's not discount the value of changes in cities and how they can inspire each other and always, always, always learn from other cities. See what somebody else is doing. Don't always look to the West um, on what's, what's happening. I think cities all around the world have phenomenal knowledge and ways in which they've thrived over, you know, centuries and millennia. And let's all learn from each other because we'll all need to come together um, to combat any other challenge. So, so yeah. Equity, climate change, and cities. Those will be my three. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for all the knowledge and experience you shared with us. And I'm looking forward to record more episodes with you because I think you're inspiring us. You're inspiring <laughs> the world. You have so much to tell. And I believe in co-collaboration for a better planet. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I am Mustafa Sharif, and thank you for listening to Urbanistica podcast. Have a good life.